0: a mountain in Lower Galilee. I'll admit it's confusing to say Lower Galilee because Galilee is the northern part of Israel. That aside, Lower Galilee basically just means the more southern part of the very top of Israel, and it's a term that scholars will use, so it's good to be familiar with it. On our tour, we had the opportunity to drive up Mount Tabor and learn more about the Old and New Testament significance of this site. We have about a 40-minute drive to our next site, which is southwest of us. So, before we get to that stop, where there's going to be a lot of walking and little shade, sit back, relax, and let's recap what we learned last time. So, we were standing at the top of Mount Tabor, and we opened up the Hebrew Bible, also known as the Old Testament to Christians, Uh, And we opened that up to the book of Judges, and we learned about Deborah, a prophetess and judge of Israel, and then also Barak, a general and leader of Israel's armies. We also found out that Deborah was trying to spur Barak to action. He needed to take his men and gather them at Mount Tabor, the place that we were at, and go meet a fierce enemy in battle. This opposing army was the army of Jabin, and the general was Sisera. The text immediately clues us in, that Sisera is commanding quite a force. For one, Judges chapter 4 says that Sisera has chariots and troops. Remember, this is back in a time when building things out of metal or alloys wasn't so common. I know it's strange to consider in the 21st century, when many of us own cars that are made of tons of steel and we have metal in our everyday lives, but if you had chariots or anything made of metal regularly available in the ancient days, it meant you had money. And with money usually comes power. So immediately we're meant to understand that Barak is going up against a formidable foe, Sisera's chariot army. But remember what happens next? After gathering on Mount Tabor, the Israelites go to fight Sisera and his army, and the Lord grants them a victory. Of course, it was truly miraculous. The Israelites simply shouldn't have been able to win. But Psalm 20, verse 7, which is a verse that many of us may know, well, that verse sums up what the Israelites experienced that day quite well. It says this, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, while that verse is from a Psalm of David, quite a while after this Barak-Sisera matchup in Judges, I think it fits the story from Mount Tabor quite well. And because of our new understanding of the value of chariots in battle— maybe that verse will take on a new meaning. I hear that verse cited somewhat routinely in our culture. It's a verse that my dad had me memorize as a little child. But the context of the first half of that verse, the some trust in chariots and some in horses, is often forgotten. So now, following our discussion of chariots with regard to this battle at Mount Tabor, you should have the context to better understand it. Chariots and horses almost guaranteed a victory in an ancient battle. That probably explains Barak's fear to go out and meet Sisera. But the second half of that verse emphasizes that we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Although Barak's faith teetered a bit and Deborah did have to remind him that God had given Sisera into his hand, he did have trust in the Lord. And God will always be stronger than any technology, whether ancient or modern, whether chariots or chat GPT. So that's a little bit of a revisit to the Old Testament significance of Mount Tabor with Psalm 20, verse 7 brought in. I'd encourage you to meditate on that verse now that we've been at Mount Tabor and got to see it in action. Well, we have a few more minutes here on the bus, so let me review the New Testament significance of Mount Tabor here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. We learn that Mount Tabor is is the possible location of the Transfiguration—that moment on a mountain when Jesus is with Peter, James, and John, and then Moses and Elijah appear also on that mountain. Now, the New Testament has record of the Transfiguration in each of these Synoptic Gospels, that is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but none of those Gospels tell us what mountain Jesus was on. We have to use context to get as close to an accurate guess as we can, and scholars will vehemently defend their position but will likely never have pure, perfect proof. And that's exactly the case with the Mount of Transfiguration. As we learned, it could be Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon. I presented all the details last time and asked you to form your own case. You know, Mount Tabor is the traditional site of the Transfiguration, but we also know Jesus and the disciples were in the region of Caesarea Philippi before climbing what the Gospels call a high mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. And a high mountain right in that area of Caesarea Philippi is Mount Hermon. So you can see it's quite a conundrum. I'd encourage you to think about it as we're here in the land of Israel. Don't just passively take in what I say and never revisit it. We're touring to take in information, of course, but then we should use that information as a springboard to do our own research and dig farther. I'll use a phrase my dad always uses, be a Berean. Do you know of the Bereans from the book of Acts in the New Testament? They were a group whom Paul and Silas went to during their missionary travels. And Acts chapter 17 says that they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's striking. These Bereans didn't just go to hear Paul preach and call it good. No, they went and looked at the Bible themselves after hearing his preaching. That's a model for us, especially when it's easy to fall into the pattern of attending church on Sundays and taking our Bibles into the service and then leaving our Bibles in the car only to pick them up again when we're headed to church the next week. This also reminds me of a question I come back to. I sometimes wonder why we don't have all of the details in the Bible for locations of places, for example. It can be frustrating, especially when we're here in Israel and we just want to go to a place and have definitive evidence, 100%, that the location where we're standing is actually where an event happened. But in reality, that can be somewhat infrequent. In fact, there can often be debate about what city or mountain an event took place at or on. We talked about that last time with Mount Tabor, and we're actually going to get into a similar discussion on today's tour. But then I think about my lazy human nature. Laziness, ah, yes. It's something we're all likely to fall into simply because we are human. But in my opinion, a great way that God combats against that, especially for those of us who want to learn the Bible well is to not give us every detail in the scriptures. We have to struggle through passages and diligently engage with the Bible if we want an answer. Augustine actually touches on a similar point in his old book, De Doctrina, or On Christian Teaching. I actually brought my copy on this tour to read a section of the book for you. Thankfully, it's a small book and I can leave it here on the bus. But listen to this passage from this incredible theologian and see if you can pick up where I'm going with this. But casual readers are misled by problems and ambiguities of many kinds, mistaking one thing for another. In some passages they find no meaning at all that they can grasp at, even falsely, so thick is the fog created by some obscure phrases. I have no doubt that this is all divinely predetermined, so that pride may be subdued by hard work And intellects, which tend to despise things that are easily discovered, may be rescued from boredom and reinvigorated. So to summarize that passage from Augustine, which is one of my all-time favorites from this small book, De Doctrina, the truth in scripture is hidden behind difficult and ambiguous passages. Why? Why wouldn't God just give it all to us nice and simple, perhaps at the level of chapter books from third grade? Well, God does that, makes some things obscure and some things ambiguous, so that we can't be arrogant about what we know. We have to search the scriptures. We have to ask God for help. Sometimes Augustine would contend that scripture is written to be hard, and then we as humans remember that if we want to discern its meaning, we have to work, we can't be lazy, and we have to lean on God. Basically, when we struggle through scripture, we remember we're not all it. Augustine actually believes the difficulty of the Bible, and perhaps he would group in there some of the ambiguity regarding places and locations of events in the Bible, well he believes that is all divinely predetermined. It subdues pride and forces us to instead substitute hard work to really get at a scripture passage. Not only do we have to struggle through scripture at times, but we also have to think laterally when reaching a conclusion about a passage or especially a place mentioned in the Bible. In other words, we can't necessarily rely on just one source or one book of the Bible. The Bible is one book, yes, but it's made up of 66 smaller books that end up totaling the one Bible. There's a reason that all of those smaller books are in the canon of Scripture together. They build on each other. Some have details, others don't. But they all come together to form a cohesive story. So in our study, we have to move from book to book, sometimes Old Testament and sometimes New Testament, and we have to piece together the details and then make our case to ourselves and to others. And don't be scared by disagreement. Goodness, people will disagree with us. Talk to any scholar, any biblical scholar about locations for where things happened in Israel, and your head will be swimming. Every side has evidence and persuasive proofs. Even here on our own tour, I've already talked to several of you who have differing opinions concerning Mount Tabor versus Mount Hermon as the location of the transfiguration. But that disagreement is okay. It's good. It means we've all gone back to the Bible and come to our conclusions, and then we come back together and share what we've learned. That's healthy. These aren't matters of salvation. No one is going to lose their salvation over thinking that Mount Hermon is the location of the Transfiguration when another thinks it's Mount Tabor. Now, as an English major at college, my guilty pleasure is trying to support an unpopular or very strange opinion in a given text uh, and then bringing textual evidence to a class discussion or even putting it in a term paper. And I quickly learned that there really are two sides to every story because so many things in writing aren't explicit. And you can really do the same thing with certain aspects of biblical text, such as where did the transfiguration happen? Mount Tabor? Mount Hermon? Somewhere else entirely? See, I'd love for you to challenge yourself to dig into the Bible and take up a side and gather evidence and share it with me. I'd love to see it. We're just arriving at the location of our tour today, here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We're at Megiddo, or what you might hear more commonly referred to as its Greek name, Armageddon. Yes, that place Revelation chapter 16 mentions as the location where the great battle of Armageddon at the end of time will take place. So I hope you're as excited as I am to be here. Well, let's hop off the bus and walk on into the site. The first thing you may notice as we stand here is how much of a little mountain this looks like. We're going to have a bit of an uphill climb to get to the top of this mound, and that's because we're at a tell. We've defined this term, tell, a few times in the past, but let's have a quick refresher. A tell is built up when multiple layers of settlements accumulate on top of each other. Essentially, a first group will build in a particular place, but then another people will come and destroy them, or perhaps the first group just moved on to another place yet again. Well, that next group, that second group, ends up building upon the ruins of the first group settlement, and that process keeps happening, and layers continue to accumulate And in the end, a tell can kind of look like a mini mountain because so many peoples have made their homes on top of someone else's settlement and it keeps getting higher and higher. And that's exactly what we have here at Tell Megiddo. In fact, Megiddo is quite a significant tell because archaeologists have uncovered 26 layers. That's a lot of times that one group decided to make Megiddo their home. And it probably says something about the location of Megiddo itself why would so many people want to be right here? Well, a tell with so many layers, like here at Megiddo, can be really helpful for archaeologists. They can go to the side of the mound and slice down the mound like they were taking a piece of cake out of the site, and then they can examine the various layers and gather datable materials like pottery and start to understand when people settled and what kind of technology and resources they employed. Megiddo is one of Israel's most excavated sites, And in fact, a lot of it still isn't even excavated. If you look around, you'll see green fields that run out to the boundary of a road over there. Yeah, that's all part of Megiddo. There's so much that archaeologists could uncover if they had the time and resources to devote to this absolutely humongous site. Let's talk a little bit about where we are. We're right in the middle of the Jezreel Valley, which is a big and fertile valley here in the north of Israel and just look around, you can see how luscious and green it is. Also, geographically speaking, we're about 20 or 30 minutes from the Mediterranean coast of Israel and less than an hour southwest of the Sea of Galilee. So this is a great spot for a people to claim if they wanted to control the Galilee region of Israel and also some important areas farther south. Plus, Megiddo wasn't a good spot for trading and commerce. Lots of people would pass right through this area. It was heavily trafficked. And we know that people capitalized on Megiddo early on in history. Remains from this site go back as early as the Bronze Age, which is defined as 3300 to 1200 BC. And Megiddo does appear in the Old Testament. In fact, in Joshua chapter 12, we get a list of the kings defeated by Joshua, a leader of Israel after Moses. And the chapter mentions Joshua conquering the king of Megiddo. Later, Solomon would rebuild Megiddo as one of his military centers, which we learn about in 1 Kings chapter 9. But most people know Megiddo for its connection with the end times. In Revelation, we learn that the world's armies will converge at a place called Armageddon. So as you look around this plain, imagine, this may one day be a bloody battlefield. It's hard to imagine that when you just see these peaceful, grassy plains. But I'm going to introduce something that may disappoint some of you. There is a scholar named Michael Heiser. He actually passed away just this last February, but he has an interesting and somewhat compelling argument that I am tempted to subscribe to, especially after some recent research. He argues that the Battle of Armageddon won't take place here at Tel Megiddo, but Armageddon is actually Jerusalem. Okay, from a standpoint just of considering Jerusalem as the most important city in Israel and the place where God chose to put his temple, I'm already intrigued by Heiser's argument. But to understand it fully, we have to break down the word Armageddon and look at some linguistics. The first part of Armageddon is ar. In Hebrew, that's har, which means mountain. And then the latter half of the word Megiddon has been interpreted as Megiddo. So let's put those pieces together. We get mountain of Megiddo, that's Armageddon. And as I already told you, and as you can see in front of us, Megiddo is kind of a little mountain here due to those 26 layers of the tell. But here's the problem. Megiddo is a tell, not a mountain. And Armageddon specifically translates to the mountain of Megiddo. And farther, Zechariah chapter 12, which talks about this final battle at the end of time, the one that we call Armageddon, well, that chapter has this to say. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. So Zechariah is clearly saying that Jerusalem is where that end-of-time battle will take place. Megiddo is only a point of comparison. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Also note the word plain, P-L-A-I-N. The text is indicating that Megiddo is a plain, not a mountain. This is pretty compelling evidence in my view so far, but Heiser has one final point involving the Hebrew language. Don't get lost here. I know it's a hot day and talking about the intricacies of a Hebrew word can be tough as we're here in Israel, but stick with me because this is really important and really cool. So the Hebrew language, as you may know, has no vowels. So there are only three letters that actually make up the word Megiddo in Hebrew. Mem, the M sound, Gimel, the G sound, and Dalid, the D sound. But we can actually use a different letter to get that G sound, and that's the letter Ayin in Hebrew. It's a very throaty sound that most English speakers, including myself, really can't produce. Now, Arabic speakers are actually the very best at this guttural sound because it comes up a lot in Arabic. I actually remember being in a Hebrew class in Israel with several Arabic speakers, and they had the and down in no time. Meanwhile, I still can't say it right. Well, this changes Armageddon in Hebrew from Har, remember Har means mountain, Har Megiddo to Har Moed. I know Megiddo and Moed don't sound all that similar, but you can kind of hear a G similarity between Megiddo and Moed. Well, here, let me, let me just embarrass myself and make Moed not sound so English, but more Hebrew with that guttural ayin. It should sound something more like Moed, and just trying to get that guttural sound, which can kind of come out as a G. Again, I cannot do it very well. But beyond just that G sound in the middle, we could either choose Megiddo, or moed, because of the lack of vowels in Hebrew and a few rules that we use to choose the vowels we believe should be there. It's the same struggle we run into with the word Yahweh, the most holy name for God. See, in Hebrew, that's just Y-H-V-H, for consonants. We've chosen to add vowels such that we now pronounce it Yahweh, but in reality, we don't know if that's actually how it's said. It could be totally some other random combination of vowels in between the consonants, and we would honestly just never know. Okay, so back to this Megiddo versus Moed, and I'm just going to say it in my nice, happy English pronunciation. You'll have to trust me on this one, but like I already explained, exchanging the gimel, that G sound in Megiddo for the I-N in Moed actually works, and the only reason we say Megiddo today is really because of a scholar's choice to say it that way and represent the G sound with the traditional gimel associated with Megiddo. So why do I make a big deal about the possibility of Har-Moed as the name for what in English we call Armageddon? Well, that's because the Old Testament actually has the phrase Har-Moed in it. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 14. Listen carefully as I read this. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn! How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Here's what's so cool. That mountain of assembly, that phrase right there that I just read, in Hebrew, is har moed. And in chapter 11 of Isaiah, that phrase is also used to describe the dwelling place of God. Where does God dwell on earth? His holy city of Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Note well here that Jerusalem really is a mountain. Trust me, when I go on runs in Jerusalem, I can attest to this fact. Jerusalem is a mountain. It's Mount Zion, Literally. So now we have to return to Revelation and John's use of Armageddon or har in Hebrew. See, the evidence from Zechariah seems to point to this battle happening at Jerusalem and not at the plains of Megiddo. And my goodness, just look around as we stand here at Megiddo. Everything is super flat except for this man-made mound, this tell. That does not fit with Zechariah's description of this ultimate end-of-time battle. And lastly, through a simple change of one Hebrew letter, a completely legitimate change because the G sound could be represented by a gimel or an ayin, through that simple change to the word Megiddo, we get har-moed, a word that shows up in scripture to mean Mount Zion, Jerusalem, God's dwelling place. That's a bit of a simplified version of Heiser's argument, but I am absolutely fascinated by it. I only learned about it a few months ago and I had to share it with you all. In some sense, I know it's disappointing because this place has been hyped up as the location of the last battle where the world's armies will converge at the end of time. But it doesn't quite make sense, both when we look at what the Bible says about the geography of Megiddo and also when we look at the Hebrew language and places where Har Moed has been used in scripture. Now, you can definitely look out and imagine the world's armies converging here. I know I've done that every time I've come to Megiddo, but I'm standing behind Heiser on this one and saying it's unlikely the last battle will take place here. But as always, I encourage each of you to return to those passages I presented from the Old Testament and also Revelation. Search the scriptures, check out Heiser's argument, and see where you land in the end. Okay, we have spent a lot of time just talking about Megiddo, But it's time to make the hike to the top of the tell here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. It's a little steep, but let's grab a sip of water, put on our backpacks and hats, and head up. Ah, Check it out as we walk. Note these old walls. Some of these Solomon had a hand in building when he made the city a military center. That's just beyond cool. And you can see that active excavations are still happening here. There's a lot more to discover about Megiddo. Let's take a moment to pause under these shade cloths and get an even higher view of the Jezreel Valley as we're at the top of Tel Megiddo. Just look out there straight ahead. See that road all the way in the distance? That's what I mean. All that green area to the right and the left until it hits that road is an unexcavated portion of Tel Megiddo. This city has a lot left to offer. Perhaps it even extends beyond the road. This really is one of the largest tells that we have found in the Galilee. For the next adventure, it's time to descend into Megiddo's water system. This is going to get a little frightening for a moment, especially if you have claustrophobia or any problems with tight, dark spaces, especially when they're underground. But I promise this will only last for a few minutes, and it will be really cool. If you feel comfortable, follow me. We're going to descend down these really steep and narrow steps. Hold on to that railing. Okay, as we're getting down lower, you can see this is Megiddo's water system. The people of Megiddo had a problem. As you've noticed, it's quite a trek to get to the top of Megiddo. Imagine making that steep walk multiple times a day with a water jug. But that's what the women of Megiddo would have had to do to get water. That's certainly not optimal. And additionally, another problem existed. The spring that supplied Megiddo with water was outside the city wall. And during sieges, inhabitants inside Megiddo could be left without water since they couldn't leave their city walls. They were under siege. And remember, Megiddo has 26 layers of settlements. There were a lot of people who wanted to claim Megiddo for themselves, and consequently, there were a lot of sieges. So in the 9th or 10th century BC, an underground water system was constructed to divert water from a nearby spring under the bedrock and to this pit that we're approaching now. It's incredibly high tech when you think about this being thousands of years ago. And during sieges, the water system was camouflaged so the enemy wouldn't even know it existed. This solved the problem of getting water to Megiddo's inhabitants during sieges and ensuring people didn't have to climb so far to get water. I mean, it was truly ingenious. So I hope seeing this was worth it, even though it is a little dark and a little creepy down here. Well, now we've seen it, so get your pictures and let's head back out into the light and load back onto the bus. More adventures in the land of Israel await. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our adventures in the land of Israel.